Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Mary Gehring from MIT on the show. Mary, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you received your PhD in 2005 from the University of California in Berkeley, where you worked with Robert Fisher. You then did a postdoc with Stephen Hennikoff at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. You then started to lead a laboratory focused on epigenetics at the Whitehead Institute in 2010, and you are now an associate professor at the biology department at MIT. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Oh, I, I, don't, um, I don't know if I remember exactly when I became interested in biology, but um, I grew up in a very rural area um, with lakes, woods, um, and so I spent a lot of time outside. You know, um, My family had a large garden, so I spent a lot of time um, doing that, weeding the garden. Um, And my dad was a, a high school biology teacher. So there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> biology in the air in my upbringing. Um, so I really liked spending time in the natural world and then also um, had, had this influence at home. Um, and then when I uh, went off to college, I actually thought I wanted to major in English and uh, be a writer. So I, I think I am a writer in, <laughs> in some ways because I, you know, write grants, write papers, um, but not the sort of writer that I envisioned. Um, but then when I was at college, I, I really loved um, genetics and I loved plant biology. And so I started working uh, in a plant biology lab and, that, and that's what got me started being interested in doing research uh, long term. So you, then did you have an academic background in family or did you know what you were into when you started doing biology, like following the academic path or was this something that you learned along the way? No, I didn't didn't have an academic background in my family. Although my my older sister, who's um, four years older than me, um, she she went to get a PhD in in biochemistry. So I knew I knew somewhat of her experience. Although even then, I, I remember I would ask her uh, when she was maybe a year into her PhD, like, "Oh, when are you finishing?" Um, I didn't I didn't really understand <laughs> what a PhD was. Um, uh, yeah, so so I didn't you know didn't have any experience of any parents or, or other relatives being in academia. So coming to your science that centers around epigenetic mechanisms of gene regulation in plants, I must confess that epigenetics in plants particularly has not been featured very frequently on this podcast yet. So, so before we dive into your work specifically, maybe we can take a step back and ask the question whether there are any major specific differences when it comes to epigenetic mechanisms in plants versus the mammalian system. Um, there are some differences, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a little surprising you haven't had a lot of plant epigenetics <laughs> on your podcast because... I might be biased. <laughs> yeah, really, you know, that that's where epigenetics started. Uh, some of the, the work uh, in in maize in the, or corn in the, in the 1920s, you know, some of the epigenetic phenomenon like paramutation were discovered then or in the 19, yeah, 1920s, 1940s. Um, so there are there are some differences, uh, but but mostly similarities. I mean, in terms of uh, chromatin and histone modifications, uh, all those same sort of modifications are are present in plants and animals. I work on DNA methylation, and um, 
in in plants, the DNA methylation system is a bit more elaborate than you see in mammals, for example. So um, there's there's more well there's there's DNA methylation more context, and the mechanisms of demethylation are somewhat different. But overall, there's there's you know a lot of similarities. Um, I would say in plants, there's much better evidence for things like inheritance of epigenetic states across generations, um, and there's more examples of epialleles. Um, actually being important, um, uh, perhaps in an evolutionary context than there is uh, for animal systems. Is it because it's easier to study or because there is just more or more of the pathway? Oh, you mean like like in terms of like epialleles, is it easier to, to find them in plants or is it? Yeah, or if it, because of the model organism, it's easier to handle that you can do the experiments easier because of generation times and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the generation times are not necessarily quick. It, I mean, we mostly work on a Arabidopsis, so that, you know, that, that is fairly quick for a plant, but um, certainly not like working in yeast or C. elegans or flies. Um, I think, I think, you know, part of why some of these, I think some of these phenomena are more likely to be important for plants because of the way plants grow and develop and, and, um, respond to their environment. Plants undergo continuous development throughout their life, which is quite different from an animal system where there's growth, but not what we would call development. So let's dive into your work. I want to start in 2009. Um, then you, your first uh, science publication came out. There you profiled Arabidopsis DNA methylation genome-wide in the, the embryo and the endosperm. Um, what did you learn from the genome-wide data there? I like how you call it my first science publication. <laughs> It's my only science publication. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe when, when people listen to this in five years, there will be more. <laughs> um, so, right. So we were interested um, in, uh, so we already knew going into that, that the endosperm was where genes were imprinted in plants, uh, meaning genes are being expressed differently depending on their inherited through the male or the female. And, um, But really, there had only been um, a couple of genes that have been looked at. Um, uh, and that was part of what I did as a graduate student, look at this one particular gene, Medea. So I was really interested to, in, in Steve Henikoff's lab, uh, learn genomic approaches um, as, you know, that's what I wanted to do for my postdoc. And um, that was just at the time when, like, high-throughput sequencing was, um, was becoming a thing. So when I first came to the lab, um, they were still doing... Um, Uh, they were doing methylation pull-down and then uh, hybridizing on arrays. And then uh, for this experiment where I looked genome-wide in the embryonetosperm, I did like a methyl IP and then then sequencing, which was, uh, I think, the the first time in the lab we'd done uh, Selex. Well, it was called Selexa then, Illumina now, high-throughput sequencing. Um, so what we found is that there were these um, genome-wide differences in DNA methylation between the embryo and the endosperm. I say genome-wide, but, but still at discrete sites, that basically the endosperm was hypomethylated, but hypomethylated um, uh, particularly at, at short fragments of transposable elements. And this was quite exciting because um, some of these, uh, these demethylated regions were um, associated with imprinted genes. And we had the demethylase mutant DME, and we could see that these regions became then hypermethylated in the DME mutants. So we knew that these were genetically controlled by DME. Um, and so the, we were able to um, find that that for imprinted genes, their regulation was now tied to the epigenetic status of a nearby TE. Uh, so that that was very exciting to um, 
uncover this more global mechanism of imprinting um, and identify many more imprinted genes than had been than had been known before. So this was like you said you did an IP for that. So it was not like looking. I mean, it's still genome wide, but it was like an enrichment first, and then looking what you enriched for, right? Right. It was like an IP seq. So it was a, a methylated. Um, uh, uh, it was the methylated DNA antibody. So next, uh, you followed up on this with a paper published in eLife, and you looked at gene imprinting then in, in uh, Arabidopsis. Um, can you talk about imprinting in Arabidopsis and what you found specifically in this uh, study then? Okay, I'll have to remember back to that paper. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was uh, I guess, the, one of the first real papers to come out of my lab. Um, so in this, uh, in this uh, paper in Steve's lab, um, I looked at two different uh, accessions of Arabidopsis or strains. Um, so Arabidopsis is distributed around the world and, and um, there's lots of natural uh, genetic and epigenetic variation. And what I had found in my postdoc is that I noticed that some of the regions that were demethylated uh, were distinct between the strains. And I thought, oh, maybe that might be connected. Perhaps there's variation in imprinting um, in Arabidopsis because of this. And maybe that's connected to seed phenotypes. Um, because we knew that that's at least some imprinted genes were important in controlling um, uh, seed development. So in the eLife paper, we we set up this system where we took three different um, strains of Arabidopsis and we did all these uh, uh, po all possible reciprocal crosses among them. And so we were able to identify um, genome-wide imprinted genes uh, using RNA-seq. And then we were able to find imprinted genes that were just imprinted in one strain, but not another. Um, and we then were able to connect this to variation in me uh, natural variation in DNA methylation in those strains. Um, so this was uh, this was really interesting to me because um, it suggested that that natural epi epigenetic variation that exists can have a potential gene expression. And then um, and then in a later paper um, in um, 2018 in PLOS Genetics, we showed a, a phenotypic consequence for the seed. So it's like. An influence from the outside has an in, uh, effect on the epigenetics, and it's not like from the inside from the plant. Well, I would say we don't know. Um, I, we don't know that the difference in DNA methylation that exists is because of an environmental influence. Um, it, we know that variation is there. We don't know how it got there. So we now talked mostly about DNA methylation. However, at least in mammals, there is also 5-HMC, so hydroxymethylcytosine. Uh, um, you set out to test whether there is 5-HMC in Arabidopsis, or maybe specifically Arabidopsis or plants in general. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did, you, did you find any? Well, that was sort of a saga. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was... Um, this also comes back to an antibody. Um, I don't remember if we bought the antibody from <laughs> where we bought it. But anyway... Um, so this was the, the last experiment I did before I finished my postdoc. I did an IP with a 5-hydroxymethylcytosine antibody. Um, yeah, and, which would be logical if you did the methyl right, experiment. Right. And, and, you know, did like by dot plot, you could detect something um, in Arabidopsis. Um, and I also did some other related species, Arabidopsis lyrata, a couple others that I had lying around. Um, and uh, did the IP and, and sequencing. Or maybe I hybridized it to some old chips we had, but... Uh, you know, it looked like there was HMC. Um, but then, uh, so then, uh, you know, my poor first graduate student, Rob Erdman, um, I got <laughs> convinced him to join the lab based on this project, like we're going to figure out what HMC in Arabidopsis does. Um, but it turned out that um, 
any other method we used um, besides the IP, we couldn't detect it. So eventually, you know, with mass spec, we we couldn't detect HMC in Arabidopsis. Um, we got some corn DNA, couldn't detect it there. And so um, we concluded, you know, if it is there, it, it's at, at the, a level below we could detect, you know, what we could detect by mass spec. So I think in Arabidopsis and in other plants, it's just methylcytosine and then direct removal of methylcytosine by the 5-methylcytosine DNA glycosylases. And that would have been my, my follow-up question. Um, Because would that mean, but now you, you kind of answered that, that there is no 5-HMC or it's just like so transient down the road for 5-FC or 5-carboxycytosin that, and they might be there and have an effect or is it just 5-MC or nothing? I mean, I, I can't, of course, exclude that there is some, um, some of these other, some of these bases um, in DNA, but there is no, uh, for example, homolog to the TET enzymes um, that has been found. Um, oh, yeah, then. And, um, yeah, so I, I think probably not, but, you know, uh, it, there could be a particular, particular tissue or stage development or, or something that hasn't been annotated correctly yet in plant genomes uh, that might have this activity. But so far, it doesn't look like it. So next, you investigated imprinting further, and this, that was probably then in your own lab um, by looking at imprinting in Arabidopsis lirata. Um, why did you need to look at this species? So why did you switch? And what did you find then? Yeah, so uh, Arabidopsis lyrata um, is a close relative of Arabidopsis saliente. Well, it's not that close. It's about 10 to 15 million years diverged, but it's the closest. And um, unlike Arabidopsis, so Arabidopsis is mainly self-fertilizing, but um, Arabidopsis saliente, but Arabidopsis lyrata um, is an obligate outcrosser, meaning it can't pollinate itself successfully. It has to be crossed with another. Um, so I began, I, when I was, yeah, after I first started my lab, I got invited to join this group, um, called testing theories of genomic imprinting, which was, uh, which meant a nascent, which was this evolutionary, um, I forget what nascent stands for, but evolutionary synthesis center that was at Duke. And, um, it brought together, um, people working on imprinting for multiple systems, uh, at the molecular level and also evolutionary theorists, um, to think about um, what does evolutionary say, theory say about imprinting? Uh, you know, why did, it, why did it evolve? How is it maintained? And then what, what does molecular biology say? And can we bridge that gap? Um, and this was very instrumental in my thinking about imprinting. And um, one of the, this is going to be kind of a long answer. <laughs> one, no, of the, okay. one of the theories about uh, why imprinting um, Uh, was selected for is because of parental conflict between maternal and paternal genomes in in offspring tissues, and particularly in offspring tissues that influence uh, resource transfer from the mother. So in plants, that tissue is the endosperm, and in uh, mammals, that tissue is the placenta. And um, basically, the degree of parental conflict should be greater in Arabidopsis lyrata than in Arabidopsis thaliana. Because it's not the same. Right, right. Um, and so I wanted to, and, and there was a particular prediction that paternally expressed and printed genes, um, should be expressed more, more highly, um, when you have greater parental conflict. And so that's why I wanted to compare imprinting in Thaliana and Lyrata. And, um, what we found was that indeed, um, uh, many of the imprinted genes were the same, um, but the paternally expressed and printed genes were expressed more highly, had a higher dosage in, in Arabidopsis Lyrata endosperm than Thaliana, um. That, that's one of my favorite papers, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I will make sure to, to link it in the show notes. <laughs> um, 
Another question when it comes to imprinting and inheritance is how stable is the information over the generations? Um, and you also looked at that. Um, can you tell us more about what you find there? Okay, what paper are you referring to? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good uh, question. It's like um, at a DNA methylation sensing circuit. Oh, oh well, that's not about imprinting. No. Um, uh, so that, right. Um, so that is, um, this was something that I actually first first found when I was a postdoc, but didn't um, didn't publish until um, I had my own lab and, uh, and a new po uh, postdoc came to my lab, Ben Williams, who really worked on this a lot and figured out a lot of this. Um, and so that's centered on uh, a five one of the five methylcyzine DNA glycosylases, ROS1, which is primarily active in vegetative tissues. So this is an enzyme that removes methylcyzine from the DNA, leading to its replacement with cytosine, uh, which is how demethylation occurs in plants. And so we found that um, ROS1 is itself regulated by DNA methylation. I should say that that actually Marjorie Matsky and others had 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 already found that ROS1 expression was affected in DNA methylation mutants. So basically, um, and, and Jen Kang Zhu um, found very similar things as well to what we did and had a paper in the same year. So the um, ROS1 expression is controlled by methylation, but in an opposite way to typical genes in the genome. So methylation in the ROS1 five prime region at a T fragment actually promotes ROS1 expression and um, loss of methylation or demethylation actually leads to decreased ROS1 expression. And ROS1 we showed is, is demethylating its own uh, five prime region. So it sets up this very nice regulatory circuit where when... Kind of a feedback loop. Exactly. Where we think that ROS1 um, expression levels is responsive to um, overall uh, methylation activity in the genome. Uh, through the action at its five-part region. So when methylation activity increases, you have increased uh, demethylation activity. And so our idea was that this might be important for maintaining epigenetic homeostasis. So what you're referring to in terms of stability is that we found we could basically um, uncouple this circuit between um, methylation um, and ROS1 expression. And what we found is uh, that um, there was a degradation of, there was uh, a loss of epigenetic DNA methylation information from one generation to the next. So it got progressively worse. I have a question in mind, but I can't express it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I've just moved on. Um, you also uh, mentioned it earlier a little bit that um, there are different um, tissue types. And uh, that methylation might be different in different tissue types. Um, so this is a paper that uh, was published last year, mm -hmm. uh, so 2022, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. um, um, and you looked at uh, tissue-specific methylation states and its impact. Um, what did you find there? Yeah, so we were looking at um, uh, what we were able to do. This was Ben Williams' last project um, in the lab before he left to start his own lab uh, at Berkeley is um, – There's, there's four DNA demethylases uh, in Arabidopsis, but one of them, DME, is, is essential in reproductive tissues because it has this, um, it's involved in establishing imprinting. Um, and so we hadn't been able to look at a quadruple mutant before to basically look at a plant where there was no demethylase activity. Um, so what Ben did is he just um, complemented uh, a DME mutant um, in the reproductive tissue only. So he expressed DME under a reproductive um Uh, specific promoter. And so then we had plants that uh, we can now make plants that were null for demethylase activity in somatic or vegetative tissues. And what we found is um, we identified um, more demethylated regions than we had seen previously. 
And also what we found is that many of these regions that are demethylated um, uh, can vary in methylation state among tissues. And so whereas previously we, you know, the field would think about, okay, a tissue-specific methylation pattern is due to differential methylation activity. What this work showed is that that part of the reason there's differential methylation patterns is due to differential demethylation activity oh, mm-hmm. uh, in different tissues. So the other end of the spectrum. That's right. That's right. I mean, it, it, it's maybe obvious now saying it later, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, didn't seem so at the time. <laughs> depends on your view, viewpoint, right? Yeah. So to finish off the trip through your scientific career, I want to talk about uh, the method cut and run. Oh, okay. Uh, being influenced by Stephen Hennikoff, it seems obvious that you are also interested or influenced by his methods. Um, what did you do to adapt cut and run, cut and run to plants? Yeah, we didn't we didn't have to do too much adaptation actually. Um, so <laughs> I may be forgetting some details, uh, and, and I'm sure Xiaoyu would would not appreciate me forgetting those because she's the one who has adapted it. Um, Uh, but it, yeah, it didn't, um, it didn't require too much change from the protocol that, that, uh, the Hennikoff lab had already put together, um, for, um, you know, Drosophila cells, mammalian cells. Um, uh, we do it on nuclei, not whole cells. Um, so that's probably the, the that most would be the main difference. Uh, yeah. yeah. Because, um, plant cells have, have cell walls. Um, and so, um, If you want to, if you want to get out a cell, you can do what's called protoplasting, where you digest away the cell walls. Uh, but for us, it's just easier to isolate nuclei and do it in nuclei. So that's basically the main step that differs. Yeah, the sample much. preparation. Yeah, and then it's also useful for all tissues in plants that you can use. Right. Right. So how does the cut and run, or how did it influence your work? Um, is it like just another method that is now sexy, or is it like does it have a really big advantages to other methods like cut and take or chip? Yeah, I think that it it has influenced our work because, um, uh, you know, a lot of our work, as as we've talked about, is in this tissue called the endosperm in Arabidopsis. And the endosperm is, you know, a tissue with an eye inside a seed. And I'm sure you or most of your listeners have not seen an Arabidopsis seed, but they're very, very tiny. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was always wanting to do chip. And um, actually, the I had first tried intact, um, to isolate uh, those nuclei specifically. That didn't work very well for me. Um, but with cut and run, because the input is that you need is so much less than for chip, it actually now opened up our ability to um, look at chromatin modifications in the endosperm and then at allele-specific chromatin modifications in the endosperm uh, that we can now connect to things like imprinting and other gene expression programs. So yeah, it's it's been really great um, uh, to be able to do that um, Uh, I can imagine that. <laughs> so, okay, now that really the last question on your on your science. Uh, what is it that you are doing right now, and what will you be focusing on in the next five years? Oh, next five years? I don't know. Uh, I mean, or for the next yeah. grant, what you can like? <laughs> oh, um, I mean, one thing I'm I'm excited. I'll just tell you uh, uh, a few things or one thing. Um, so we um, we found. Um, You didn't. You didn't ask about this paper, so I'll mention it. Um, we did. Um, we were interested in in looking at imprinting at the um, single cell level in the Arabidopsis endosperm, because based on our our bulk sort of RNA seq, we would always find that that particularly for the paternally expressed imprinted genes, that they would never look completely monoallelic. Um, and so we wondered whether that was due to, you know, both alleles are being expressed just at different levels or whether there was variation in imprinting among endosperm cells or endosperm nuclei. 
And so uh, former uh, graduate student Colette Picard looked at this with um, single nuclei RNA-seq and identified um, that there's imprinting variation within the Arabidopsis endosperm. And particularly, we find that there is um, uh, stronger imprinting of, of paternally expressed imprinted genes in the colossal endosperm, which is a region that, that sort of interfaces with maternal tissue. So that suggests that there must also be epigenetic heterogeneity within the endosperm that we've been blind to before. And so what we're doing now is um, trying to understand that. And so uh, trying to understand whether within the endosperm, there's different epigenetic states uh, that are connected to this variation in imprinting. And so now we're, you know, doing things like cut and run on even smaller uh, populations. Or single cell? Yeah. Uh, we haven't tried the single cell cut and run. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think we'll, well, we might try that this summer, I guess. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's a student coming to try that. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, understanding what are the sort of uh, epigenetic dynamics that are occurring after fertilization in the seed that explain these uh, differences in imprinting. Sounds very interesting, and we will keep an eye out for that. So now science is finished, okay. <laughs> but I have uh, rather uh, two more general questions. So the first one, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end or hit a wall where you did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Oh, many times. <laughs> <laughs> but, but is it like like uh, a micro like bump or is it like a... a oh, a, like, a, like a project that you, you yeah. stopped because it didn't work? Um so both ways is, is fine. Yeah, I mean, I think in all projects, there's there's lots of bumps, as you know. Um, uh, I would say the HMC project surely hit a wall. <laughs> um, uh, but but no result is also a result, right? That's right. I mean, it, it's harder to get no results published, but I mean, negative results, I should say. Uh, they were they were great results, very beautifully done. But um, uh, yeah, I mean. How did you then cope with that? So ha have you been trying to look even harder to find something or did you say at one point, well, the data is conclusive enough so we stop here and we know that it's not there? Yeah, basically that's what we said. Um, and, and then we were, and, and we said, oh, and, and then there's nothing to publish. But after some reflection, probably after a year, we were like, well, maybe we should publish that and tell people that there's actually not uh, HMC uh, in okay. Arabidopsis. Um so it, it turned into something positive. And I would say that it was really actually uh, led by the, the graduate student who, you know, obviously wanted to get something out of the nice yeah, work you've done. Yeah. yeah. So in the last almost 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. And this is why I did not <laughs> mention all your papers, because I wanted to give you some room here. But can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed? But you're Oh, I did, I did already. <laughs> I spoiled your question. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, most important findings. Yeah, that's that's tough. Um, or something that you like most. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I I really like the I like the the Ross one regulation by methylation. We we coined that the epigenetic rheostat. Um, I really uh, love that work, um, and um, I think more and more I'm interested in evolutionary biology, um, and so. Um, uh, so you're thinking of including more plants into the panel and then looking at also? yeah yeah um, we, we have we have um, we've done some work on water lily that hopefully we'll have a paper together soon. So water lily is really interesting because it's a very um, uh, early flowering plant. It's an early diverging angiosperm, and it, uh, it endosperm the genetics of endosperm are somewhat different in water lily. 
And so we've looked uh, for imprinting there and have some interesting results. So I'm excited about that. Um, but it also, you know, leaves open questions that would uh, maybe be, exa- you know, answered by, by looking at additional species. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Mary, for your time and for being on the show. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.